the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things, put them in your brain. Hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter. This is what, like our 13th episode now? I believe so, yes. Lucky 13. For this episode, we thought we'd dive into the realm of songs that are covered by multiple artists, and in some cases, you know, of cover songs, sometimes the original is more popular, and other times, a more influential artist covers the original, and it just explodes in popularity. So I guess we're going to be discussing some songs that are kind of both of those cases. Yeah. It's pretty interesting to, like, look at cover songs and see how the two artists sometimes did them differently or put their own artistic twist on them yeah there's some good uh, there's some good examples we have of that actually yeah the first example that uh i came up with when thinking some of these up was uh the song respect because little do people know that it was actually originally written in 1965 by otis redding and his lyrical version the way he sang it was more of a plea for uh, like a desperate man trying to uh give his woman anything she wants basically he's whipped or whatever whatever you call that <laughs> and he's kind of spineless so she does, he doesn't care if she like cheats on him or whatever as long as he gets the respect he thinks he deserves when he when he comes home i guess it's it's more of like the misogynistic male perspective of i'm the man i deserve respect i guess interpret that any way you want it let's listen to a clip of otis redding's version of respect what you want, you got it Actually, a lot of the songs, because this is 65, I would say other songs I've heard from this time period and before, like earlier on, I think that's more prevalent. The misogyny of them? (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, the feminism movement definitely kind of followed in the steps of the civil rights movement, which is actually um, kind of the case with this, uh, because a lot of people know that Aretha Franklin did the song in 1967. (laughs) interesting thing about that version is because it was written in 1967 only two years after otis's version while his version carries a semi-misogynistic tone whether intentional or just a product of the times we don't know but this version is definitely what's the word is definitely um known as having a very feminist undertone as the franklin version adds the chorus r-e-s-p-e-c-t with the backup singer saying suck it to me suck it to me suck it to me And it was actually kind of a landmark for the feminist movement because it exploded in popularity as considered one of the most popular R&B songs of all time. And it actually earned her uh, two Grammys in 1968. That's cool. You can argue that it's so because a man saying he needs respect and then a woman saying she needs respect. And that's kind of, you know, I guess the duality of that. But Aretha Franklin's version obviously is much, much more popular than Otis's in part due to the feminist movement of the late 60s, helping carry that song to popularity. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense that the the female version of that would be a lot more popular. What other songs do we have that were covered by multiple artists, Mr. Peter? 
Well, one of the first ones that I thought of was Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which is a song that pretty much all of us know. Something I didn't know about it was that it was originally written by the songwriting duo Ashford and Simpson. They became really famous for writing a lot of uh, Motown hits. Uh, they actually wrote Ain't No Mountain High Enough before they were in Motown, and they kind of used this song to actually get into the door, which was kind of cool. The song was first recorded in 1967 by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, and that's the version that we all know. So it was, just to confirm, it was written by Ashford and Simpson, but they themselves never performed it? I don't think they performed. They were mostly um, they were mostly songwriters. They did perform some songs, but they were mostly songwriters. Okay. Yeah, because I knew I knew a few of the songs that they've sang. I didn't know they were more influential as a writer. Yeah, they're 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 a pretty cool duo for that reason. Um, but yeah, anyway, the cover version that I wanted to discuss was one that was done in the in the following year, in 1968, by Diana Ross. She recorded a version with the Supremes, who were obviously that was the the girl group that she was with during much of her career. And this actually was actually done on an album that she the, the Supremes did with the Temptations. So it was basically Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations all together. Super group doing this huge album. Which is pretty cool, because they were pretty much the two biggest groups during that time at Motown. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. This version is actually a lot different from the uh, the classic version that we heard before. Let's actually listen to a clip of it. put it very nicely When he was away from the one he loved He sat down and wrote these words No So Diana Ross's version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, as you can hear, is more slow, ballady, I guess. It's not, like, upbeat and happy like um, the other one as much, but it's, it actually became more popular than the original and hit number one on both the pop and R&B charts, whereas the original only reached number 19 on the pop charts and number three on R&B. See, that's funny because, at least for me, when I hear Ain't No Mountain High Enough, I think of Marvin Gaye. Right. I think of the original. I mean, I don't get me wrong, I've heard Diana Ross's version and I like it, Yeah. but it's just funny that that one was the one that became more popular because I associate it personally with Marvin Gaye. Yeah, I th- what, well, about, I think, what about you? I think almost everyone does. I mean, I didn't even hear the Diana Ross version until sometime this last year, whereas, you know, I think most of us are kind of raised on the Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell version. Yeah. So in that in that case, the original is technically, I think over over time, is definitely more popular and more well-known, but at the time, the Diana Ross version was actually a lot more popular, at least as as far as ratings go. I think because, at least at that time, Diana Ross was a more popular artist than Marvin Gaye, at least in the mid-60s. When was Marvin Gaye more popular? Was it he was a little bit later on? Marvin Gaye kind of exploded in, I think, like, 69. Okay. 68, 69, so, I mean, he, he was still popular, but this is definitely, I think, one of his earlier songs, mm. and Diana Ross had already had, I mean, she'd been around, for, what, like, 63? So she had yeah, uh, she had been around for she a, was a veteran of the industry, I guess. That's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if he had performed it a couple of years later, whether his version would have yeah, that's that's a very good question. Better on the charts, I guess. But I guess it doesn't really matter because in the end, his version is more well known anyway. It's 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 just it's funny to think about that because I like Marvin Gaye, I like Diana Ross. It's just funny that her ver- maybe I don't know maybe because of the way she made, she put her 
twist on it, it resonated better with, better with the times. Mm-hmm. But I will always hold dear in my heart Marvin Gaye's version. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, that version is just more... It fits yeah. the popular top 40 type of formula a lot better, which is probably why it's overall been more popular. True. Another song that was performed by two groups is How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? It was actually originally performed by the Bee Gees in 1971, and it was their first number one single in the U.S. This was before their disco transition, correct? Yeah, I mean, this was only 71, so they had a number of years before they would... Yeah, because what did Boogie Nights come out? Like 77. Yeah. So yeah, this is before their mega explosion of disco... So yeah, that's that's cool. I guess that because this remember in a prior episode we were discussing that they had more of a sort of poppy soft rock sound. Yeah, this was during that same time. Let's listen to a clip of the song so listeners can see if they have if it if it carries that same original sound that they had. How can you stop the rain from falling down? How can you stop the sun from shining? What makes the world go round? Yeah, when you listen to that, you can definitely see... Because, yeah, I mean, we, we've covered this before. Their older sound was more Blue-Eyed Soul type thing, R&B. And then they got into disco later, obviously. I mean, that their, like you were saying, their original uh, version of the song was like that sort of soft, soulful sort of R&B pop that they were, they were known for originally yeah. before they transitioned to disco. Uh, soul singer Al Green, who is one of the godfathers of kind of soul and R&B in the early 70s, actually recorded the song for his 1972 album, Let's Stay Together, uh, which is widely acclaimed, easily his most popular album. How can you stop the rain fall down? Tell me how can you stop His version, sadly, never really charted, probably because other songs on the album that he himself performed were much, much more popular. Something I want to say is that, I mean, because I knew the Al Green version for a number of years, and I always just just assumed that that was an original song of his, and I didn't even know until maybe a month or two ago that the Bee Gees were actually the original group who performed this song, and they actually wrote it as well. So it's interesting, because this is an example where you, you know a version of the song and you assume that that artist was the original one who did it, but then it turns out that he's actually covered it. I knew I knew it was an Al Green song, because I, mean, I, I worship that album, Let's Stay Together. But no, I had no idea that it was originally a BG song. Yeah. I, and I, that, I guess that makes more sense as to why it wouldn't have become as pop, it wouldn't have really charted with Al Green, because, I mean, why is a cover song going to necessarily chart off an album that has so many amazing original songs? that he's done well because he had a number of really popular singles from that yeah album. oh yeah yeah well including let's stay together obviously exactly like stay together yeah. title title album or title song yeah so yeah that's pretty interesting i mean I, honestly i like i was saying before i like the bg sound before they went disco like this kind of stuff so i definitely appreciate that they originally wrote the song and it's giving it's cool I mean, if it was their number one sing, first single obviously this is probably one of the songs to put them on the map yeah, I mean, I, I think, I'm pretty sure this was like their breakout single, so. Well, there you go. I guess another song that, that I, I guess you could call it a breakout single, a breakout hit for these guys, Groovy Situation, which was actually originally uh, written by Russell Lewis and Herman Davis, but performed by the group Mel and Tim. Let's take a listen to that, their original version of the song real quick. That girl, 
This is an example of like a breakout song, but actually, in a way, I don't know. I obviously don't know anything else by Mel and Tim, so this would they actually would have been a kind of like a one-hit wonder. Yeah, they would have they would have been good for our one-hit wonders episode. Well, there you go. This song that was kind of first recorded by them shot them into popularity, but they didn't really do much afterwards. So I guess you can kind of consider this their one-hit wonder song. Uh, what's funny is that even though it was a popular song when it was written by them. Like, one year later, uh, in 1970, it was covered by Gene Chandler, and he was a very popular artist uh, at the time, and actually reached number 12 on the Billboard Top 100, and was his second biggest single behind his song, Duke of Earl, that was actually performed back in 1962. Can we hear Gene Chandler's? Yeah, let's listen to it. Let's listen to his. Uh, a little bit different, and it was just recorded just one year later, so... You're something that I just can't miss about girl. I'm gonna make a mine if it takes all night. Can you... the, the funny thing about Groovy Situation and these two different versions is that they actually sound pretty similar. I mean, I would say of the ones we've listened to so far in this, uh, or with, that we've been discussing today, I, I would say these two probably sound the most similar out of the dual versions. I guess, how can you mend a broken heart? Maybe a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, this is weird how... Because I don't know how popular the Mel and Tim version ever got. I, like like I said, I think it made him a little a little bit popular, but it was kind of a one-hit wonder for them. It didn't really... Was it more popular than... than no, the, no, 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 no. By, by no means. Chandler definitely took it to a whole other level with that. Mm, that's funny. It is. It's kind of... It's kind of... You kind of have to feel bad for Mel and Tim. You know, they performed the song and like got a little bit of popularity, and then this other guy does it, and just explore its popularity. It's like it's like Reddit, where people post stuff, and then someone else posts the same thing, and it gets way more upvotes. Mm. If anyone here, if anyone who listens to us knows how Reddit works, <laughs> I don't. So, oh, but now we know. Okay, yeah. one one more song that I wanted to mention that's really famous for being kind of a cover song is "You've Got a Friend," which was originally written and performed by Carole King in 1971. Let's actually listen to Carole King's version of "You've Got a Friend." Troubled, and you need some love and care, and nothing, nothing is going right. This is one of Carol King's most famous songs, and she's really considered one of the great songwriters, performers, I guess, of that time. The album Tapestry, from which this uh, the song was included. That won her four Grammy Awards in 1972. And that album is certified diamond, which means it sold 10 million copies, which is a hell of a lot. What's platinum? Uh, maybe five million. I actually, that's something we can look up right now. I don't, I don't know. There you go. Did they actually, like, cause you know, like when they reach like gold or silver or whatever, they give them like a gold album or a platinum album. Did they give her a diamond album? Uh, that's actually... A... <laughs> <laughs> Here is a gigantic diamond album that's funny uh let me look it up really quick it is so popular it will not even melt in lava if it's still if okay by the riaa recording industry association of america so if the album sells five hundred thousand, it reaches gold and if it hits a million that's platinum so if it's two million or more 
then it's multi-platinum, and if it's 10 million, then it's diamond. Which I've, ever, I've actually never heard of that before, but... Yeah, neither have I. They better have given her a diamond something for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether they actually gave her a diamond record. A diamond I, album? Yeah, <laughs> I... Don't Please know. do not play it on a record, as it will cause the earth to implode. It would probably grind up the, the needle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um... So Carol King did the regional version of You've Got a Friend, but the by far the most popular version of the song was done by James Taylor uh, just a few months later in that same year, and that became his first number one hit and won him a Grammy Award for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance, and it's basically one of his signature songs, if not his most popular song. Um, let's actually listen to a clip of it right now. Close your eyes and think of me And soon I will be Brighten up even your darkest night. Again, another song that sounds sort of similar, but he James Taylor kind of puts his own twist on it, I guess. James Taylor is more generally of like a folk singer, correct? I think so. I don't know that much of James Taylor, so but I do know this song. For, yeah, from what I remember, he, I mean, this I like this cover, but from what I remember, he's mo- he's mostly kind of like folksy. What I, I actually want to mention a third version of this song, which was done by Donny Hathaway in, I believe, 1971 for his album These Songs For You Live, which was a live album that he did and actually wasn't released until after he died, I want to say in 72 or 73. You know how he died, right? Yeah, he killed himself. He had, like, schizophrenia and became, like, incredibly paranoid that the white man was trying to steal his talent. Yeah. And ended up killing himself. Yeah, it's album. really a sad story because... Because just because he released so much good music, and uh, let's actually—I want to hear uh, the version he did on this album. Um, as you can see, the his version is a lot more—it's a little bit slower, more soulful. And it really builds a lot on uh, audience participations because it's live and most, pretty much everyone in the room seems to know the song. So he, he's almost like backing up for the whole audience basically singing it, which is a kind of a cool twist on it. Something I want to mention is that he actually recorded another version of the song as a duet with Roberta Flack for their collaborative album that they released in 71. That was, that was called Roberta Flack featuring Donny Hathaway, correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, that's actually a pretty good album. I encourage you guys to check that out i believe that they were having that they had some issues during recording that because of his mental instability so i think that album was released not that long before his death so it says um i'm just looking here a little bit okay um that after his death flack was obviously understandably very devastated right and spurred by his death she actually included some of the duet tracks that they recorded on that album okay because i remember there was i think they did too because because they, they, there's one where they did the entire album together, and then there's a second one. It might be the one you're, that you're looking at. Yeah, I think it is. Where it was released after his death, but it includes some songs that they sang together before he died. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the second of the two. Yeah, You've Got a Friend was released on the, the earlier one. But yeah, so that's a that's a third version. And obviously, I'm sure many other artists have covered this song as well, because it's definitely one of the more popular ones. My favorite version is the one that was in Toy Story. Because that's totally the same song. <laughs> you got a friend in me. <laughs> if you're done singing, Kyle, I have a question for you. 
Um, yes. I kind of want to just... These are all the songs that we've written down for today, I guess. Uh-huh. Something I want to talk about a little bit more is, like, why do you think these these cover songs can become more popular than the original? Or what what is it that makes one version of a song more popular than the other. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the notability of the artist that covers it. If they're a popular artist that picks a song that perhaps the original wasn't in, wasn't as incredibly popular, in the case of Groovy Situation by Melton Tim, mm-hmm. uh, the artist can kind of bring their notoriety to it and kind of give it a boost, and so more people will perchance listen to it because they're more familiar with the uh, cover mm-hmm. artist. Some, and sometimes, honestly, a cover artist can just such as the case with uh, Aretha Franklin, put their own spin on a original song and kind of take it to a whole, in a whole new direction. Where it, even though it's a cover, it, it's kind of become synonymous with that. She artist. she kind of changed some of the lyrics on that, right? Yeah, she changed. Yeah, like I said, she changed some of the lyrics. She added that chorus with the spelling out of respect. Yeah, which basically defines the song. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like I was saying, a lot of artists can kind of put their own twist to put their own uh, uh, characteristics into the song. So even though the song was originally a cover, it's kind of a, a modified or stepped up version of the original, so it, it becomes more synonymous with them as an artist. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, like, in a, in, a, in a case like James Taylor doing You've Got a Friend, I mean, since this was his first number one hit, I don't, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess that, that he wasn't as popular as Carole King at the time. I think I think part of it with James Taylor is because, like I said, he kind of has that more folksy sound. Maybe it resonated in with people who listen to the folk genre as opposed to more R and B. That's a good know. point. So maybe it's like a, a genre thing almost. Yeah, I mean, some it's a lot of a lot of covers can hop genres, I guess, depending on who performs them. What is this song that the Black Keys covered by somebody? What are you thinking of? Oh, never gonna give you up. That's what I'm thinking of. I guess Jerry Butler originally did that. Yeah, that's right. Now I, you know, the Black Keys more than I do, obviously. I mean, does is that wasn't that one of their more like more popular songs? Yeah, I mean, it was off their um, album Brothers. Yeah, it's from Brothers. Um, and it, it was it was it was one of the more popular songs off their album. I recently saw them in concert a few weeks ago, and they and they played it, so it was popular enough for them to play in their set list. Yeah, um, I don't know on the top of my head how popular uh, Jerry Butler's version. I, mean, but, I, I guess I was just wondering whether this was like a huge song for them. Or if it was I mean, just... I'm looking here, and it seems like he's a pretty popular artist. I mean, he was popular more in like the late '50s, early '60s. Honestly, I had personally I had never heard of him until I looked up that it was a cover. It was a cool song, but it kind of didn't sound like other songs that they performed because they're more of a psychedelic blues rock group, and this is definitely more of a slow R&B type ballad. So yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting, and I just investigated more and found out there was actually a, a cover. That was originally written by this Butler guy. You know, it would actually be interesting for a future episode to do uh, contemporary covers of more classic R&B soul songs. I'm sure. I'm sure that's a decent amount. Because yeah, this. Well, I mean, I could just think of a couple on top of my head. This one included because the ones we all, the ones we talked about today, the the cover version never came out more than two years after the original. In most cases, just later that year or like the year after. So time isn't really that much of a factor. I guess, the examples that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to think, because I know Otis Redding did a song... Oh, that, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, Otis Redding did the song Satisfaction, and then it was actually covered by the Rolling Stones and became exceedingly mm. popular with them. I thought it was actually pretty interesting that Otis Redding originally covered that. I mean, mm. the Stones are definitely very R&B's influenced, 
in a lot of stuff. So right. it's easy to see that why they would cover it. It's yeah. just funny because that's one of the quintessential Rolling Stones songs that everybody knows. Mm. Just another example. I mean, that's, I don't know. You can call the Stones contemporary or not if you want. They've been around for like 50 years. Right. So in a in a situation that you were saying before, like for example, the Gene Chandler version of Groovy Situation might have gotten people to discover Mel and Tim through that respect. Mm-hmm. I think that might I think that might happen more now. Where like contemporary artists cover songs and then people find out that it was originally written by somebody else. You know what I'm finding that that's kind of that's this whole other uh, can of worms is sampling of songs mm. in newer things like rap and stuff, and then people will go back and figure out that that was sung by some artist you know 30 or 40 years ago. I I guess we can go research it. I don't I w- I want to say the Mel and Tim weren't hugely popular at any given time and they may have trailed off after Groovy Situation came out. So it's kind of funny how Gene Chandler makes a version of one of their songs and that version becomes really popular, whereas they, as being the original performers of the song, kind of fall to the wayside and no one ever really knows. It's kind of interesting that that can happen sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like I was saying before, it's a little sad in some respects when an artist performs a song, it doesn't really go anywhere, and then someone else picks it up forms it and it explodes i can't think of any specific examples but i've seen that in the past when doing research is that you'll find out that some popular song is, was originally written or performed by somebody but then like there's almost no information on them because they did almost nothing but it's funny because then like you never know who they were even though they were behind that really popular song i think a lot of that happens um with writers for songs too is you kind of don't sometimes don't realize that other artists wrote some of the songs that these guys performed and the artist may, may be famous in other respects, like Ashford and Simpson. Right. But it's just sad because they don't get as much of the credit uh, as the one as the people who necessarily perform them. Yeah, so. definitely. I think, in a way, I almost correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like I'm trying to form a thought here because it seems like, with a lot, especially with Motown, for example, you have a lot of like landmark writers who penned a lot of these really popular songs, and you can kind of pinpoint them now as you know specific you know key people in motown as writers mm-hmm. i don't know i don't necessarily know if if writers were more known among the popular music base during that time or whether we just know them now because we look back i think because, uh, i mean i don't know anybody who writes songs now you know i don't think i think a lot of i think because especially with motown and really there's the music in the 60s it was, it was much more of a collaborative process yeah um, that writers similar to certain screenwriters uh kind of just are in that role of accepted, uh, I guess, invisibility, where because the song is performed by a much more popular singer or artist, because Motown was a kind, of, kind of a collaborative process in that way, they just were accepting of the fact that these artists perform their songs because maybe they can't sing or whatever, depending mm. on their um, ability, but they were still respected within the community of Motown, if not so much by a broader audience. Mm-hmm. And similar with um, a lot of background bands uh, or groups that really kind of gave a lot of these famous songs the sound that people are familiar with, but really kind of go unnoticed because people are focusing on the on the lead singer or on the artist who is attached to the song. Right. <laughs> That's actually another something we could talk about later on because yeah, studio bands like at Motown and uh, stuff like that. I mean, they were bas- they were basically behind pretty much all of the the, the biggest. Motown songs, but like nobody knows who they are. That's that's actually a pretty interesting subject. There was one more thing I wanted to say. Oh, because we were talking about writers who weren't that popular 
just because of their role in the song process. I know we talked about this a little bit. I don't know how much we got into detail. I don't remember. But uh, Barry White was originally a songwriter. And he didn't actually want to be a performer for a long time. But eventually he kind of got pushed into it by his friends because they said that he was really good. But like, for example, he would he would record himself singing the songs that he wrote so he could shop them around and find uh, people to sing them. But then eventually he just became a singer himself of his own songs, which is kind of interesting. I wonder if I wonder if a lot of I wonder if a lot of other artists kind of did that, where like they performed the song themselves to sell them to different studios, and then the studios perhaps were like, "Well, we like the way you did it." Mm-hmm. So I would say that probably doesn't happen that often, but yeah, uh, I mean, maybe yeah, more than we think. I don't know. Depending on their ly- lyrical, I guess, talent. So yeah, definitely. That pretty much wraps it up, I think, for today. Yeah, that was a awesome discussion. And we didn't, we actually stayed on topic pretty well today. For, for most of it, yeah. yeah. We did not devolve into horrid graphic things of terrible nature. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash getyourfunk to get all the latest updates and to make sure that you always know when we have a new episode up so that you can come listen to us. And you can find us on iTunes so you can listen to us on your iPhone or iPod or iPad or iPad Mini or iMac or any digital device that has access to iTunes. Or your PC, because that has iTunes as well. Oh, yeah. Forgot. I'm surprised Apple didn't, like, say, no, you can't have iTunes. Just like, <laughs> In that voice. Exactly. Steve Jobs, no, no, iTunes is for Apple. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yes, as always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed our little educational discussion, and we hope you uh, listen to us more as we touch on some of the topics that we uh, talked about that we might touch in the future. Yeah, this has been Kyle. And this has been Peter. Thanks for listening to Folk Radio. We love you. Bye. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.